your Bibles with me, Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah 10, and this morning we're going to continue along on this series of Renovate, and we're going to see that in the renovation process, God wants us as his followers to develop a remnantology. You ask, well, what in the world, Rob, is a remnantology? I'll explain that a little more. Uh, But remember that this theme of remnant has been emerging in Isaiah. God has remnant people. What are these remnant people? They are people who dare to live by faith. They're not super spiritually elite people with a high brow who look better than others in the way they live and act. They're people who genuinely, authentically live by faith. In the New Testament, we call them disciples. Every Christian is called to be a remnant person, a disciple. We're called to live out a faith that works no matter what our circumstances, no matter what we're dealing with. Now, Isaiah 10 can be broken up into two main sections. The first section is a word to the nation of Assyria. That's verses 5 through 15. The second section is a word to God's remnant people. That's verses 16 through 34. As Isaiah develops this remnantology for us, he really is going to ask us the most important question of all. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God's in control? Do you believe that he is the Lord of history? Do you believe that God's never left up in heaven wondering or fretting how a situation is going to turn out? I love this quote from the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. He said this, if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. If there is one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside of the scope of God's sovereign ordination, then there is not the slightest confidence you can have that any promise that God has ever made about the future will come to pass. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to this issue of sovereignty, Sometimes we like to get up in our white ivory towers and ask all of these confounding questions like, hey, can God make a rock so big that he can't even lift it? It's a stupid question. They say that there's no stupid questions. That's a stupid one. It really is. Because God can't like logically contradict himself, right? So when we get into this matter of sovereignty, let's look at what the Bible says and let's take it by faith that it's true of God. Let's take a look at the God of history in these first verses. Isaiah picks up and he says, Ah, Syria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? 
Is not Kelno like Karshemesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols who carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found, like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. And here's the Lord's response. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Let's acknowledge something this morning. Prophecy is not always easy to understand. Anybody with me on this? You're reading this section of text and you're like, huh, I wonder what he's saying there. You can think of it like this. This is why we have issues here in the 21st century. It's like reading newspaper clippings from 2,800 years ago. Uh, there's these very involved current events that Isaiah is dealing with, names and events and places and peoples. And as you hear him speak of these things, you think to yourself, well, I'm just not familiar with any of that. Uh, the farther back in history you go, the foggier the history gets. We think we know some stuff about Assyria today, but we don't know all about it. It's kind of like, put yourself now in the shoes of someone living a thousand years from now, they're gonna be looking at our newspaper clippings and be like, why did they care that Kim Kardashian and Kanye West got a divorce? And who in the world is this Lady Gaga? And how did this Kim Kardashian get famous? And who knows, they might be brains floating in jars. So they might be asking the question, why do they care about their waist sizes so much? We just don't know how they're going to interpret our history. But when it comes to scripture in contradistinction to our history, we actually want to do the work of understanding the history of the Bible. There's great benefits to it. The people and the situations that they were de dealing with then, there are transferable principles for the people then that apply to us today. Why is that? Because the God who was leading and guiding them is the same God who is leading and guiding us today. I like what Paul says in Romans 15 verse 4. He says that for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, 
we might have hope. You know what you're missing out on? And if you avoid prophecy, if you avoid this history, you're missing out on hope given to us through the principles of the scriptures. So let's talk about this superpower of Syria. They're the big kid on the block. They're bullying all of the little smaller kingdoms around them. You just can't even begin to fully appreciate how threatening this superpower was in their own time and in their own day. They had been on the scene for decades, half a century or more, and they were a serious threat. At any time the king of Assyria sneezed, the rest of the world around them, they were quaking in their boots. And interestingly enough, Isaiah says something that's quite shocking to these people. He says this in verse 5. Woe to Assyria. Woe to Assyria. The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my, is my fury. Now do you hear what, what Isaiah is saying here? He's saying that Assyria is God's tool. Even if they don't see it that way, even if they believe that they're master of their own fate, God is pulling back the veil of history, and he is saying, I'm the God of history. I'm in control. I am sovereign. This passage, Isaiah chapter 10, is one of the most important passages in, in all the Bible on the sovereignty of God. What does that mean that God's sovereign? Well, Sproul gave us a very practical imagery of that, but what it really means is that God is the supreme king of the universe. He rules with an unfrustrated supremacy. No one's ever ruled with an unfrustrated supremacy other than God, let me tell you that. When God wants something to happen, it happens. In Psalm 115, verse 3, the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does what he wants to do. So what does that mean for Assyria? And then more broadly speaking, for our current day and age, what does it mean for human history in general? Well, it means that no nation stands on its own. Every nation is subject to God. Every nation is serving God's ultimate purposes, even if Russia and China and the United States of America and Great Britain don't see it that way. It doesn't matter how they see it. God is God. He's in control. He's so sovereign that we're seeing in this text, he even can use the villains to do what he intends to do in history. And he can hold the villains responsible for their actions. Whoa, it's interesting. God pronounces judgment on Assyria for two reasons in this text. You'll notice first that he holds them responsible for their cruelty. Look at verse seven. It is in their heart to destroy. So even though God sovereignly allows them to attack Israel and Judah, he doesn't condone the tactics. They've gone beyond the pale. Historians would say that Assyria were the Nazis of the ancient Near East. 
reprehensible, horrible tactics. I could tell you things from history that would make you cringe. God also holds them responsible for their arrogance. Their boasting was legendary. In verse 8, the king of Assyria, he's, he's bragging that his executive team is comprised of other kingdoms that he has brought under his dominion. Can you imagine that? Well, I've taken over all of these companies, and, and, and the executive team is former CEOs. I'm a big deal. And then in verse 9, he's bragging about his ability to take nations further south, approaching Jerusalem, six nations. And his logic goes like this, well, if I defeated all of them, well, then I can defeat you too. This guy can brag with the best of them. Let me read you a little newspaper clipping or tweet, if you will, from this time period. It's a little earlier in the history, but... It's really consistent with the Assyrian king's attitude. He said, In these days, when at the command of the great gods, my lordly sovereignty has manifested itself, going forth to plunder the goods of the land, I am royal. I am lordly. I am mighty. I am honored. I am exalted. I am glorified, I am powerful, I am brilliant, I am lion brave, I am manly, I am supreme, I am noble. And he should have followed that up with, I am humble. Because that's the most humble thing I've ever read in my life. You know, interestingly enough, when you look at history, there are historians that say, you know, uh, we don't believe that Isaiah 36 and 37 really happened. We don't believe that in Hezekiah's day, 180,000 soldiers were killed in a single night. And the reason we don't believe that is because, well, the kings of Assyria never wrote about that in their historical records. Look at that guy's paragraph and think about this for a second. Do you think the guy that wrote that paragraph is going to admit that he was devastatingly defeated in one night? Come on. I mean, that is like propaganda at its finest. Now, let's take this idea here and put it into our own time. What, what does God want us to see from this? Well, he wants you to see that everyone who appears to be large and in charge on the world stage, or even in your own personal life, is really insignificant in God's eyes. And in reality, they're really insignificant. I can prove that to you. Do you know anything about Tiglath-Pileser III? Anything? You're shaking your head. You're like, I don't even know if I could repronounce the name you just said. And in, in, in reality, it, it kind of just, you know, I'm shocked that you don't know about him. He was like one of the most powerful leaders for 20 years in this time period. Why wouldn't you know anything about him? Well, the answer is because it's totally irrelevant for your life today, right? 
It has nothing to do with your life today. He's so insignificant. He was just a blip in history. And I'm telling you, should the Lord tarry 2,000 years from now, no one's going to know the name Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping. Time has a way of reducing inflated issues and concerns to their actual insignificant size. And it helps me as a believer because, believe it or not, I can get proud just like you can. And I can start writing my own headlines and thinking I'm kind of a big deal. Here's the deal. Whenever I go there in my mind, I just need to think about 2,000 years from now. No one is going to know the name Rob Wheeler. I'm not even going to be a footnote. But here's something that's really cool when you think about it. I will be remembered by God in eternity. Why do you put all of your eggs in the history basket? We need to put them in the eternity basket. I like this story in the life of FDR. He was the assistant secretary of the Navy at the time, and he's visiting Henry Adams at Lafayette Square. If you remember, Henry Adams was an author, and he was from this storied Adams family who you know from history. And FDR is in his house, and he's going on and on about the Wilson administration and how great they are and all the things that they're doing. And, and Henry Adams just kind of stops him after a while. He gets very direct. And he says, young man, I have lived in this house many years and have seen the occupants of that White House across the square come and go, and nothing that you minor officials or the occupants of that house can do will affect the history of the world for long. Ouch. It's very similar to what God says to Assyria in verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? or the saw magnify itself against him who wields with it. Let me paraphrase that for you. Get over yourself. You're a tool. <laughs> Dr. Sproul said, if you believe there is even one molecule running rogue on God in the universe, you can't rest on the incredible promises that God has made in the scriptures. As you develop a remnantology, this is what makes God's remnant people different. Their worldview is not, you know, subject to the whims of what's going on in the present. If things are going really, really good, they're not patting themselves on the back. And if everyone's running around with their hair on fire, they're not devastated in the same fashion that everyone else is. You see... Isaiah has two powerful words for the remnant of Israel and the remnant of Judah. The first word is to the remnant in Israel. It's verses 20 through 23. And let me read that for you. He says, In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant 
of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. Now, I want you to see the core of the message there in verse 20. Lean on the Lord. What does it mean to lean on something? Well, to lean on something, of course, means that I'm placing my weight upon this thing, confidently expecting it to hold me up. I would not sit in a chair if I expected to be falling to the ground moments later after sitting upon it. I'm expecting it confidently to hold me up. You can lean on things in your worldview. In this time, Assyria was the dominant military power, and Judah and Israel, they leaned their weight on playing politics, trying to outmaneuver. They wanted to play chess. Here's the deal with history. We're playing checkers, Satan's playing chess, and God's playing like that Star Wars, like 4D chess when it comes to history. They were grabbing a tiger by the tail, Isaiah says. And we can do the same thing. We can grab the tiger by the tail. I like what Ray Ortland Jr. says. He says, we can be susceptible to alien saviors. In other words, we have this tendency to lean on things that are foreign to biblical faith. Now, for some of us, it's our net worth. We think we have that stockpile put away that's going to protect us and preserve us and we'll be able to control the future as a result of it. For some of us, we don't have that. We think we're just incredibly frugal and smart with money and we will always be able to outmaneuver the market. Some of us, we do this in the realm of control. And you know, you can try to control your world in a lot of different ways. Maybe I control my world because I don't engage in relationships because someone hurt me and I'm not going to let them do it again. Or I control my world through the way I consume things. I eat because it makes me feel in control. I watch television too much because I feel in control. Some of us, we, we create this construct of ourselves in our mind where we think, I am always competent. I don't make mistakes. I don't mess up. All of those things are like grabbing the tiger by the tail. What happens when you do that? The tiger will turn around and bite you. Something will happen in your world where you will be shown, demonstrated, proven that that thing can't support the weight of your life. You see, Isaiah is asking you a penetrating question this morning. Where do you get your security, your coping skills, your confidence for the future? One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. This kind of succinctly says it all. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Dallas Willard, he was highly influential in the area of spiritual formation, or another way to say that is discipleship. 
And even decades ago, he, he said that there is this great disparity, that there's this great disappointment amongst Christians. Notice people who are in the faith, not outside of the faith, where they have been giving their lives to the faith and they come to the conclusion it's just not working the way it should. So far as they can see, it's not working for them and it's not working for those around them. So he says there's this great disparity between the hope that we have for the life expressed in Jesus and then the actual day-to-day behavior, inner life, social presence of those who claim to know and follow the Lord. Why? What's going on there? He, he uses this powerful analogy to explain it. Imagine in your neighborhood, you have a neighbor across the street and you're regularly going out to work around the same time and you notice that their vehicle is just constantly giving them fits and problems. They're trying to start the car and the car just won't ever seem to start well and when they finally get the vehicle running, it is just hiccuping all the way down the street. Now, you might become convinced that that car is a lemon and you might be right. Only you have a conversation with your neighbor And as you ask them about the car, you come to find out that because it's too expensive, they've been occasionally supplementing gasoline with water in their engine. Hmm. You start talking to your neighbor very seriously, and you say, you idiot. You are going to have to rebuild that entire engine. You are destroying the vehicle. It's not the car's fault. This thing is a pretty good car. It would get you where you want to go. You're putting the wrong stuff in the gas tank. Put the right stuff in the gas tank. Now, could it be that many Christians are not giving themselves to faith in a way that allows for their life to be taken over by it? that we're supplementing, we're substituting the authentic thing for lesser things because we don't want to pay the price of gasoline. Dallas Willard, and I'm going to read an extended quote here. It's a little more heady, but it's really helpful. We know that the car of Christianity can run and run gloriously in every kind of external circumstance. Let me just say this. If you look at Christian history, the faith has prospered in all manner of situations. We have seen it, he says, or at least anyone who wishes can see it. Merely looking past the caricatures and partial presentations, let me interpret that for you, meaning I had a couple of bad experiences with a few Christians or maybe even a bad experience with a church. And then I kind of leave those experiences and I say, all Christians in all places and this faith is broken. He says, if you can look past those things and at Jesus himself and the many manifestations of him in events and personalities throughout history, meaning people who are actually putting gas in the car, he is simply the brightest spot in the human scene. There is no real competition. When you find Christians that are putting gas in the tank, you come to realize that this Christian faith, this thing is a high-performance vehicle. It really, really works in your life. 
What does it look like when you're putting gas in the tank? Well, Isaiah shows us, verses 24 and 25, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. The benefit to the real thing is tangible. It can be experienced. He says to these people, be not afraid. Now, do you know that as a human being, all of us have this deep human need for well-being, emotional well-being, spiritual well-being, physical well-being. When I experience those things in my life, I experience a better quality of life altogether. Now, here's the truth. We live in a fearful world. And we can rage against that fact. We can say, I don't like that this world is fearful. The world ought not to be like this. The world ought to be different than this. But in reality, that is the world that we live in right now. And the Bible gives us an explanation for that. So, in Isaiah's day, the fearful reality, Assyria's coming. If you look at verses 26 and forward, as he talks about this march towards Jerusalem, he's picturing this unstoppable army coming from Judah. The names and locations of places are some of the most rugged, difficult uh, terrains to traverse in this area, in this geography. And they cover this ground in two days, and they're sitting there right at the doorstep of Jerusalem. That's a fearful thing. Now, the only way you're going to endure something like Assyria coming is if you have a remnantology. You have to really believe. You have to have a faith that runs on the pure stuff. You have to firmly have your confidence and your identity and your emotional strength and all of that rested firmly that God is sovereign. And then when that looming catastrophe comes, you're not sitting there nail-biting, wondering if God's lost control. You're looking at all of that and you're saying, he is never, ever going to have a moment of unfrustrated leadership. God is always in control. Now, what sort of faith is this? It's the kind of faith that can look at God and can look at Assyria and say, when the two are pitted against one another, God wins 10 out of 10 times. Always. I love how Isaiah shows us this through the names of God in Isaiah chapter 10. Look at the different names that Isaiah uses. He's first called the Lord of hosts. You'll see that in verse 16, 23, 24, 26, 33. That name could be translated the God of angel armies. He's also called the light of Israel, chapter 10, verse 17. The Holy One, verses 17 and 20. The Mighty God, that name implying that God is mighty in battle. And the Majestic One, 1034. 
Remnant people cling to God because they realize something wonderful about God. You see, through these names, we learn that he is whatever his people need. He has unlimited potential, unlimited power. This means that no matter what I'm going through, no matter when Assyria is coming, God can cast himself in the appropriate role for what I need in that moment. Think about the various forms of Assyria that you may experience in your world. For some of you, Assyria has represented bottomless grief in your life. You've just been dealing with that You've been having a hard time overcoming a loss that, that left this vacuum in your world. You know, Scripture gives God a name that meets you in that place. He is the God of all comfort. He actually enters into the casket of grief with you. He walks through it with you. He is your strong source of support in the midst of that grief. For others of you, you've wandered from the Lord Scripture says all of us do that. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. You know what God is to you? He's the good shepherd. He's the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. And for others of you, because you've been wandering, there has been just regrettable things that you've done. You haven't been walking with God. You haven't been living his moral will in your life. You're ashamed. You feel guilty. You're like that son who was in the muddy pit with the pigs. He said, I just, I just want to go home and just be like a servant in the basement to my father. And he makes that long journey. And what he's met with is he's met with a prodigal father, a father who runs from the door. Now, that word prodigal is an incredible word in the scriptures. It can mean and describe the behavior of the son, but really prodigal, it talks to us about generous lavishness. So you have this father who's running out of the house, and he doesn't even want to hear the son's story. He's just so glad that the son's returned. God is a prodigal God. He meets us in that way. He's also, in this text, repeatedly called the God of angel armies. Do you know how powerful angels are? I look at the story later on in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, that story of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah is practicing remnantology, and he brings Sennacherib's letter into the house of the Lord, and he says, Lord, you got to take care of this situation. There is 180,000 soldiers out there. I can't do anything about this. And the text tells us that the Lord sends out one angel, the angel of the Lord, and that he wipes out 180,000 soldiers in one night. You know how many angels there are? Scripture says there's myriads and myriads. You're like, well, that's helpful. What is a myriad? Well, I looked it up. In the Greek lexicon or dictionary, BDAG, there's two ways we can understand myriad. One way is that it means 10,000. It's a unit of 10,000. Or another way is it's like modern slang to say a lot. Like we talk about something being a gazillion, right? And I understand that when it's talking about myriads and myriads that God is saying, I have a gazillion angels that I command. So you do the math. 
one angel takes out like 180,000, how much could a gazillion do? This is why this is the most important question. Is God sovereign? You're never going to develop a remnantology. You're never going to live out of faith where gasoline is in the tank if you're questioning that fact. Think of it like this. If you can trust Jesus enough for your salvation, so we're talking about your eternal destiny, where you will inhabit for all of eternity, why can't you take his words seriously when he says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. They don't have a remnant ology. They're stuck in the present. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them all the time. I like how Peterson paraphrases the next verse. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. You know, of all the things that you think about and stress over and worry about, that's the one thing that you need to think about. What is God doing right now in my life? And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen. You don't have to run through the scenarios in your brain over that thing that you're stressing about. I've done it too. I've thought through a million scenarios of how something's going to turn out, and here's the deal. It never turns out the way that I'm stressing. It goes some other direction. Even if it does, Jesus says, God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the times come. Lord, this morning, we hand up before you our lives. We want to have a remnantology. We want to be disciples and not just Christians, not just sitting in chairs, practicing half-heartedly this faith, putting water in the tank, if you will. But we want to be genuine and authentic in our pursuit of you. We want to make it our singular ambition in life to be transformed from the inside out that we would be practicing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that that would be the attitude of Christ in us because we're growing to look like Christ in our world. Pray, Lord, that we would trust you in the places it counts and that we would see you renovate our lives in the way that only you can. In your name we pray.